0: Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. Stay tuned today for an important invitation from Leslie. But for now, here is today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered.
1: Welcome, I'm Leslie Vernick, and I am here with a special guest, Roseanne Forte. Roseanne is an alcohol-free coach. She's also a positive intelligence coach and an international bestselling author of a daily devotional called The Plans He Has for Me. She helps people put alcohol to the side for 12 consecutive weeks by educating them with the scientific principles behind alcohol abuse using God's foundational principles on renewing your mind. Roseanne was gracious enough to send me a copy of her book last year, and I was intrigued with her story as well as how she was using alcohol to medicate her relational and internal pain. So I went through her book for 12 weeks. I went alcohol free for 12 weeks and I have not sipped a sip since. So it's profound for me. So thank you so much. And I'm sure many of our listeners can relate even if it's hard to admit, that glass of wine at the end of the day when you're stressed out can feel so good. So Roseanne, let me start by asking you, how did someone that loved Jesus and was a leader in the church Get caught in this
2: cycle of alcohol overuse and abuse. A great question, and I would uh, tell you straight out that I believe the lies of this world. Um, you know, first of all, I started, I started drinking at a very young age, at thirteen, and mm. um, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until thirty-three. But you know, it's just kind of to fit in. It's what teenagers did, and then I went to college and. It's about having fun and I just participated there as well. I graduated to the workforce and it was everywhere, you know, Monday night football, Friday night happy hour, business lunches, conferences, just really surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we are taught by this world that you use it for romanticism. So no beautiful dinner with your Significant other is complete without that glass of wine, and um, and then I think I really started getting in trouble when I used it to manage stress. I was an executive. I was managing a very toxic marriage. I had four kids. <laughs> I was playing the executive role and trying to play the traditional housewife too. And needless to say, it was breaking me. Um, I did become a Christian due to my um, marriage problems. We were separated when i was pregnant with my second child and my in-laws were christian missionaries so i gave my life to jesus and i loved god's word and i played um leadership roles in the church for decades um you know, i was a bible study leader i spoke um i was treasurer of a church i I started ministries for the sick and dying, but then I was trying, and you probably have heard this before, right? I was always also trying to make my non-Christian husband happy. And I was living in his world too. And um, we were partiers and we, you know, we party. And it was, it was just horrendous trying to play both worlds. And um, when my marriage finally collapsed after 29 years my drinking went off the cliff (laughs) like Mm -hmm. because i was so mad at god i didn't know what had happened to me i i just told you before the broadcast that i you know it was like what just happened like i didn't know and i've heard other people in your podcast like i didn't know i was in an abusive marriage i just thought i was the problem like if it was (laughs) i remember thinking going through my whole marriage thinking that he thought we would have had the most perfect life if it wasn't for me <laughs> like all my complaints right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know so at that point I was just super mad like darkness engulfed me I was mad at God for not answering my prayers I was mad at myself for staying in this marriage that you know why did I do this uh, you know I did it in the name of God but I don't think I understood I was looking at For answers, right? And, um, you know, I was mad at God, I was mad at myself, and I was mad at Him. So it was a trifecta of anger and darkness. And I was diagnosed, I didn't even know this existed, but I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, not just depression, (laughs) major depression. Yeah. You
1: know, Roseanne, I think that's so typical. Actually, when I wrote my book on depression for women, back before I ever wrote the book on emotionally destructive marriages. One of the things that woke me up to this whole problem of destructive marriages is when I was counseling and working with women who were depressed. And then when I was speaking around the United States, I would say, well, I'm writing this book on depression. What do you think is the number one problem that's causing your depression? Hands down, hands down, with from the women I counseled to the women I spoke to, um, it was marriage unhappy destructive marriage and you feel trapped and you don't know what to do and there were no answers and these women were suffering major clinical serious mental health issues because they didn't know what to do and the best solution the church gave was to pray and go to counseling for depression and sometimes you're allowed to take antidepressants but they don't solve your problem they might numb you out So that you can have sex with your husband i had a client who was on antidepressants xanax and would have to drink a couple of shots of vodka every night in order to be able to be intimate with her husband because if she didn't kind of knock herself out she would feel so used and objectified she just felt like a piece of meat and she just couldn't stand it and so what answers do we give women and we haven't hadn't and so that's when i began to really do my work on the emotionally destructive marriage like what's it doing it's destroying you um but women are using alcohol to cope and to make do and to numb out and that was your story huh
2: i completely lost sight of who i was <laughs> like i completely lost sight and thank god today i can look back and go oh the now I remember this girl, this happy, go-lucky, productive person, the, the person that God created me to be. but I didn't I didn't find that person until I did two things: <laughs> heal from the destructive marriage and the lies and get rid of alcohol. And I will tell you in terms of the counseling thing, I definitely, oh, I invested a lot of money. In, um, in therapy and I needed it, but I, I didn't realize the extent of how much alcohol was causing the problems that I was talking about in the therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't admit, I don't know if people do that. Like I didn't, I was not going to tell my therapist or my pastor that I had an alcohol issue. Yeah. People don't and, even tell their doctor. It's shameful. Oh, I hit it. I hit it because when I was, oh, just 26 years old, I went to the doctors and, um, the, you know, the doctor always asks like, how much do you drink? And I'm like, about 10 drinks a week. And she went, (gasps) Oh, and I was like, what, how do you do that? Like Monday night football, Friday night, Saturday night, I'm single, like four drinks a night. That's not a big, I never, I never told the truth again.
1: When you were still married, Roseanne, did you ever try to stop drinking alcohol? Did, did that cross your mind to, so that, that seem to be part times.
2: of the problem? Yeah, several times. And that's, that's kind of, you know, it's part and parcel of driving your, like I call it mental gymnastics. Um, only after five, only on the weekends, only with other people, only on holidays, only on Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, you try and put these parameters around it and you're not successful. And it was funny in our marriage he was fine with my drinking when he was drinking but he was not fine with my drinking when he was not drinking so mm. it was it was just a difficult thing to manage and you know we talk about guilt and shame a lot in in a lot of the conversations i have and my pastor did, did such a wonderful job teaching about this it's like guilt is when you do something you know, wrong and, and you sin and you turn around and you repent and you say, I'm sorry, God. Shame is when you believe you are the wrong thing. And in sh- in in the alcohol habit, what I call, and by the way, I'm, cha- <laughs> I'm trying to be a trendsetter here. I want to change all the languaging around it because I think we ought to talk about it as freely as we talk about, it. I got to lose 10 pounds, right? It's, they're both equally hard. They're hard to do. I'm not, it's an addictive substance. And, um, I, I just don't, I, when I had the problem, I would not, because you, you understand more than anybody in the world, the psychology of a person that's in a toxic relationship, you're already feeling like you are the massive, a massive loser, a massive problem the last thing you want to do is tell your spouse, I'm going to AA because I really am the problem, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Right. No way. And I'm not adding this already horrible piece, like self-esteem and adding a name to it because I just don't identify with that spiritually. I just don't think that we're supposed to be identified by our sin. Like, And I know AA has saved so many lives. And so I don't want to take that away from them, but I just want a different approach because I could have gone maybe 10 more years before I slammed into the brick wall that would have said, I have no other options, but to go here. And I think that is what AA is for many Mm -hmm. people. Anyway, it's when your court ordered, your marriage is on the line, you've gotten a diagnosis, you know, but a lot of people get caught in this well before they hit a brick wall. They just know it's affecting their life.
1: So what was your moment
2: where you said, I got to get a grip? I'm going to just answer. I just want to say one thing. And that's a good question. I don't use alcoholic recovery or sober only because they lead the mind to, Oh, you're one of those. And Mm -hmm. I don't. So I just say, I want to be alcohol free because it's a better way, way to live. Mm -hmm. So there is a moment for everyone where they go, okay, enough is enough. And that moment for me was when COVID came in. And luckily I, you know, I could have gone one of two ways. Um, and I, I was getting healthier. I wanted something better for myself. I trusted God had a plan, but The guilt and shame that went along with the drinking was just horrendous. And I just couldn't get control of it. So I saw, you know, we all remember those uh, pictures of Italy where they're throwing body bags and trucks and they can't Mm -hmm. keep up with the body bags and excessive alcohol use depresses your immune system and your lung function, two things which you really need (laughs) to survive COVID. So that scared me enough to go, I quit, I quit. And then I ended up joining a secular program um, online to get coached for 90 days. And I'm very grateful for that because at the time, the concept, and that's the other thing with the other programs out there, right? The concept of quitting forever wasn't an option for me. I just said, look, I got to quit and I got to know what it feels like. But thank goodness, I only need to do this for 90 days. So that's why I challenge people for 12 weeks, Mm -hmm. um, because the mind has a hard time conceiving forever. Well, I
1: I think that was brilliant, because when I got your book, I thought, oh, I wonder if I could do it. I mean, I didn't drink that much, but I thought, I wonder if I could do it for 90 days, because I noticed that after COVID, I had increased my dependence, not totally, but you know, when you felt stressed out, you felt entitled sort of like right. I used to eat ice cream, which I didn't eat anymore. Now I <laughs> felt entitled to drink a glass of wine and thing. I was thinking this isn't probably a good long-term strategy. So, and this isn't what I would want people to think I do. So let me do this 90 day challenge. And you know, then I'll decide, do I really feel better? Do I really, you know, see a difference? And I really did.
2: That is exactly what I'm doing. I'm like, look, when people are struggling in the midst of the thing, I'm like, I just need 12 weeks. I just need to show you what's possible. It's not like you have to do this forever because it's like forever. I'm just going to walk away. But for 12 weeks, then you have the evidence of how life can get better. And as you know, I doc, I want you to document, are you sleeping better? Are you feeling more connected? Are you dealing with your stress better? That kind of stuff. Um, and then I say it's your choice. So that's <laughs> that's a little rebellious in in the addiction world. But the reality is, that's what it is. I used to be a very heavy cigarette smoker, and I'll I'll say drug addict level, two to three packs a day. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I couldn't go half hour without a cigarette, and it, it would be irritation and I couldn't go on field trips with my kids because it couldn't last that long without a cigarette if I was at a public place I don't have public ashtrays anymore but if I was in a public place and I didn't have access to a cigarette I would grab a cigarette out of a butt somebody else's butt out of an ashtray and smoke it that is the definition of a drug addict I'm sorry Mm-hmm. So I just say that because I want people to understand, I know what, adi- I know what addiction is, right? But it wasn't a cigarette I wasn't a, a smoke and I'm not recovering from it. I quit because it, it was killing me. And it's the same thing that I'm saying here. I want people to do it long enough to understand what's possible. And then, it, and it gets easier, right? You already, showed that. It gets by the end of 12 weeks, you're like, wow, I can manage this. I can say no. (laughs) But the temptation will come. It will come again. Yeah, it really does.
1: And I, I think, you know, for our particular population, Roseanne, I think you have something very gold here. And that is so many women in destructive marriages don't have choices. They don't, they're controlled, they're managed, they feel like they have to just be the good girl, they have to sacrifice and suffer. And so The choice to drink, even secretly, may be empowering to them to say, well, I'm going to do this for me, you know, and we kind of get into that little rebellious piece or this thinking it's self care, even I'm going to comfort myself, realizing that that's got a price to pay as well. And so recognizing that we have a choice to do it and we have a choice not to do it and we have a choice to experiment about what it feels like to not do it and then decide whether we wanna keep not doing it. Um, I think it's very powerful for a woman who's lost her
2: voice and lost her choice to remember you do have a choice, let's make one. I look back and I kind of wish I could have done this or did think about doing this inside the marriage but I've actually had the opportunity to process forgiveness um, and to develop a relationship with my ex, and you know how we all think, like, oh, you still wonder in your head, like, is he different? He seems so nice. Is he different? Is he? Different? So we ended up being friends and spending time together, like for even a weekend in separate rooms or something. And it it was so cool for me to look through the lens of a healthy human being and go, oh my gosh, how did I deal with that? Like, but with clarity, right? And I just would challenge people to choose this because one, you will feel like less of a victim, you know, um, you will be empowered when you do this, because when you can do something that is this, it is a challenge. I'm not going to lie. It's a challenge, but it's, it's kind of once you're done it, it's like okay, what's next, God? What can I tackle next? And once I got through my my twelve um, week challenge, I I tell my counselor I don't need you anymore, and she's like, how awesome! <laughs> like because it was every week for three years, you know. <laughs> and I haven't needed a counselor since then. I mean, it just provides so much clarity and wisdom and way to operate that you can just see things, you can see God's word for what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Talk about, you know, some approaches are more, you know, do this, do that. So they're more, a little bit more control and you have to take these 12 steps or you have to do that. And I'm not saying those don't work. They do, but your approach is a little bit different, very self-reflective, um, very, encouraging, uh, very supportive. And that is something that all women in destructive marriages wish their husband was toward them. The thing that they need to learn to do is be that way toward themselves. How do you help people who are struggling with so much shame and guilt and feelings of helplessness and defeat and all of that turn around their negative self perception and the way they treat themselves. It's not just the abuser out there, it's the abuser inside.
2: That. Yeah, and the devotional is very intentional that way, very very intentional um in not shaming. It's more about look at what God said. We thought this was a rule. God really loves us so much and the name of the devotional is intentional the plans he has for me you know when i was in my darkest moment and i was looking at jeremiah 29 11 for i know the plans i have for you plans to prosper not harm you plans to give you hope in a future i was scoffing as i'm sure many of your listeners are (laughs) like yeah right god here i am in darkness with the blinds closed drinking what's the plan but i did walk in faith and I thought it was super important to, because I know it, whether you're in a, in a toxic relationship or not, addictive substances start getting to your mental <laughs> wellness. I, I've, I was an executive coach. I've, I've coached and, and enrolled lots of high-performing CEOs. And it doesn't matter who you are, when you're used to being able to put your mind to something and get it done. And then you can't, you start beating yourself up and the problem becomes you. So it was very, and, and I was looking, I'm glad you mentioned the 12 step. I didn't go through that obviously, but I looked at, I think it's step six. I identify your character defects and like, what, you know, to, to a person who's already, and a lot of my clients have been Sexually molested, right? And we're going to, and they used alcohol to cope. And we're going to ask them to identify their character defects. So then I looked at the list. It's like envy, greed, selfishness. I'm like, wait a minute, that's all of us. Like, it just didn't make sense. So my approach is you're not the problem. That substance is the problem. And we have been lied to. Give me 12 weeks and I'm going to prove it to you. (laughs) And in the meantime, I'm going to show you where God gave us the steps to walk this way. He, he gave us this loving instruction. He warned us that this would create demise. He warned us that we would be a slave to sin if we practiced sin. And I call it psychological slavery, you know, And people go, well, Roseanne, that's kind of a buzzword. Like I'm like, I don't care. Anybody who has been in the midst of it completely has no issue with me calling it psychological slavery. You want to break free of it, but for some reason you can't. It's a ball and chain in your brain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can because God can renew your mind. (laughs) That's the point.
0: (laughs) Quick question. Has life gone the way you expected? The way you wanted? Life is challenging for everyone. Sometimes though, handling the hard times feels impossible. It's like you're going from one breakdown to the next. If this is you, do yourself a favor and mark your calendar for December 5th. Leslie is offering a free workshop on moving from breakdown to breakthrough. This isn't about denying reality. It's about learning to think and live differently. No matter what's happening, you do have choices. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash story to sign up for this important workshop. That's leslievernick.com forward slash story. You talk a lot about
1: forgiveness, not just of other people, but also of yourself. Why is that so critical
2: to healing? When he wipes the slate clean, it means he remembers no more. And there's scripture to support that. If we continue to focus on something we did in the past, we cannot experience what God has planned for the future. I mean, this whole forgiveness gig, I'm sorry, is (laughs) that's the, the foundation of our faith. And I'm not sure how people operate without it because when we can really process it the way God asks us to he literally looks at your repentance and says you're forgiven my child and I'm not going to remember it anymore and he releases us from it so that we can move forward with light to the extent we are still experiencing it over and over in our head and our in our being we can't see what's possible we can't make a possibility we're living in fear Um, we're, you know, and now I, I live in this place of what's next, God, what's next. And that's where God wants you to be because that, that allows you to show the light that he intends when we accept Jesus, we have the Holy spirit, but we can dampen it, you know, dampen that light and hide it by focusing by not processing the forgiveness that is available to us hopefully that helped
1: (laughs) yeah i think there's a lot of misteaching and confusion on the whole area of forgiveness so i'd like to just unpack that a bit for our listeners because forgiving we as human beings aren't capable of totally forgetting even mm-hmm. Paul says, you know, I forget what lays behind lies behind and I press on forward. That's what you're talking about. It's not that he has amnesia about no. what lays behind, but it doesn't keep triggering him into shame. And I think that's really important because even Paul says, hey, if anyone was a sinner, it was me. I was the chief of the sinner. So it's not like he forgot what he did. He knew what he did, but he was so focused on what God did for him that that no longer triggered him into a shame attack. Into I right. I can't do it, I'm nobody, look, what, look how I ruined my life and everybody else's life and how could God possibly, it didn't go there anymore. That trigger of shame and self-hatred and all that was broken, even though he didn't forget technically the facts of what he did. He knew that they were still there and he could even talk about it, but not with the emotional overload of that shame and guilt. So that's one piece of forgiveness. And I, and I had an interesting insight, Roseanne, in recently when I was reading through one of the Gospels, I think it was Mark or Luke, same story. Jesus is going to the cross and he's being abused. And when you said forgiveness is the bedrock of our faith, when Jesus says, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. like I stopped and I said, why, Lord, did Jesus forgive them? He wasn't going to have a relationship with them. He didn't know them. They weren't going to have a conversation after this. He was just going to the cross. Why did he say that? And why was that important for us to know? And I think as God spoke to me in his Holy Spirit, he said, because Jesus wanted to go to the cross with a pure heart. He couldn't hold that unforgiveness and be our sinless redeemer. Right. And so that's part of our journey of humanity. How do we let God create justice For the oppressor for the abuser for the person who harmed us. Um, How do we keep our side of the street clean internally, so that we're not encumbered by the shame of our own sin or the hatred and anger at someone else's sin toward us, which is normal human reactions.
2: Right. And I do appreciate you clarifying that because forgetting is not part of forgiving. (laughs) And I, I'm going to make sure I, my language is, is right. Because as a matter of fact, in order to make conscious choices moving forward, we must remember the mistakes of our past, right? There's a movie that will play out involving sin when we choose alcohol and drunkenness and so it's not about forgetting we need to learn from our mistakes and our sin but you've nailed it it's not about the shame it's about remembering and i like i like what you said too about paul you know he's he always reminds us of who he used to be um but he doesn't he forgets about the past and pushes forward yeah Mm -hmm. perfect
1: yeah One of the things that we talk about in our group, and I'd love you to chime in on this, you know, we talk about healthy self-care. So I was the kind of romantic um, wine drinker. So we would go to dinner and dinner didn't feel like I still don't like going out to eat as much as I used to because dinner was associated with, oh, we're going to try a new wine or we're going to get something that we would never buy, you know, and try something. And giving that up was like, oh, it doesn't seem as fun anymore because and it still feels that way. But I don't do it because the change I felt was in the middle of the night, I would have terrible heart palpitations. Mm. So I knew, I didn't know if I was getting just old or something was wrong with my heart. But when I did that 90 day challenge, I didn't have that anymore. Yeah. And so I thought, And hopefully oh, you oh.
2: document Well, you must have documented because you remember it. <laughs> yeah, like duh, it's alcohol. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: I never associated that. So I thought, oh, it was those two glasses of wine I drank at dinner. That's why I'm having these things. So I think it's so important for us to understand what healthy self-care is and not feel selfish about it, because what we've substituted for healthy self-care is comfort. Mm -hmm. And comfort comes in a glass of wine. It comes in a bowl of ice cream. It comes in shopping on the internet. It comes in something that brings a negative consequence. Right. You know, it feels good in the moment. And then in the long run, it hurts our body. It hurts our testimony. It may hurt our bank account. It may hurt our health. And the thing it may hurt the most is our integrity
2: mm-hmm. because
1: we may act out in ways or do stuff that we are ashamed of later.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think you're right. We're looking for the, I mean, that's what our society teaches, you know, be happy now. <laughs> and I think that you need to have a continuous vision on who God wants you to be. Um, you know, he accepts us right where we are today. We don't have to change a thing but there's just this continuous learning and growing and walking with him. And when we start deviating, you know, it, as you say, it just takes away from that and it takes away. And I just think that's why I I like, again, the plans he has for me because it's about knowing, even if you're not there knowing there's a better plan. I, for, for many of the people listening, you know, this isn't going to come as a surprise, especially if there's substance abuse involved. You know, the thoughts of wanting to leave this world are, are, are real. And I, I, if I wasn't a Christian, I probably wouldn't be here anymore. But I was, and I just had to trust um, God. But to go from you feeling you have nothing further to live for to sitting here talking to you writing a book like who would have (laughs) thunk because i'm not any different i was i showed you my book before like all my your book i was my bible Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um no way did i think that god would use me for this as a matter of fact i used to say i was a bible study teacher and leader but i always used to say ah i'm not an evangelist and here it is like Uh, you know, when you have a drinking problem, you find God and, and you can find God in that, you know, in that devotional. I think that's very, yeah, spirit led.
1: Rosanna, there's a woman out there right now who's been living with the knowledge that I've been drinking too much. Mm -hmm. I'm not happy with me. If I had to tell my doctor how much I'm drinking every day, or if I had to tell my Bible study friends how much I'm drinking every day, I would feel embarrassed about myself. I would feel ashamed. Um, How might they just begin to turn that around and start to care for themselves by just doing a challenge, doing a 90 day challenge?
2: That is self-care because one of the things that I try and I don't know if you picked up it in the devotional, it's definitely in the curriculum, but um, you're taking something out that you're kind of emotionally attached to, right? And so you feel deprived, especially at the beginning, maybe the first four weeks. So then the next, you know, kind of four weeks, it's like, now what do I do? But I try and encourage people, there's something in us, all of us that says i know i have this gift i know it was meant for more i know i'm good at something you know what i mean and during that time while you're taking something out i really encourage you to put something in and that's the self-care part that's what, god, what did god create you to do i don't gardening flower arrangements you know singing and when you start finding joy in something that god created you for and then you can use it in the kingdom too because that's the second part but you know um joy with no guilt no hangover joy with no guilt no hangover and then you go this is what it's supposed to be like this is what it's i'm supposed to feel and i never had that opportunity (laughs) because i started drinking at 13. so but i want to tell your audience You are not alone. I have talked to some names that you would recognize on a worldwide (laughs) basis. You know, everybody is slinking around in secret now that uh, National Institutes of Health say it's 11.3% of the population. That alone is gargantuan. But what percentage of those people didn't admit they had a problem? Mm -hmm. I think it's really really big and i think we're at this point and i guess what i'm trying to say it's not you it's the substance it's the lie of society of the commercials of the alcohol companies that just said do this it'll help you get the girl or the guy do this it'll help you relax do you know um you'll so have more get, fun you'll
1: be more popular
2: you right. all of that Yeah. And I think those of us that are caught in it know that lie, wait, it's not really that fun. And I would, I would offer to develop the awareness. Like I'm drinking it to, this is the biggest lie. It's going to reduce my anxiety. And so maybe that first drink has, has an effect, but then there's a second, third, fourth, what did I do? What did I say? How did I react? I was trying to avoid a problem. I wake up the next morning. I have the same problem because I haven't dealt with it. And I probably created a couple more because I have to worry about what I did, what I said. I didn't sleep well. I'm having a hard time at work, right? It, and as you say, it increases anxiety, increases your anxiety. And you're drinking it because you're falling for the lie that it's going to relax. And it does the exact. Now, if you could have one glass of wine and stop, then maybe it would, you know, decrease anxiety. But you shouldn't do that all the time because you know you, you need to find ways to decrease anxiety and in, in healthy healthy ways. And uh, an addictive substance or an addictive behavior is not ultimately what's going to solve the problem. So mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah, Roseanne, you said something really powerful that, you know, we we do something to solve the problem in the immediate that we think is going to solve whether it's our anxiety or, you know, we're stressed out over something external and we think it's going to calm us down. And it might promise that relief for a minute. But the kind of thing that I use to judge whether that's effective is how does it make me feel about me later so it might make my body calm down but so would a shot of i guess i've never done it but a shot of drugs or a puff of marijuana or whatever so some things can help your body calm down in a minute or in an afternoon but does it make you feel proud of yourself good about yourself you know, would you want people to know that's how you use coping mechanisms, those kind of things. Th- that helps me discern, is this a healthy way of handling my stress or is this an unhealthy way of handling my stress? It might work temporarily, but it it has a hangover. And I'm not just talking about a physical hangover. It has an identity hangover. Like, who am I? I don't yeah. like how I showed up. I don't like the person I'm becoming. I don't like the decisions I make when I'm in that place. And so I think those are things that, we don't really think about even shopping too much as saying, "Hey, that's not what I want to be. I don't want to do that. I want to be a greedy consumer, a person who spends my money on more stuff that I don't need and don't want and don't even know what to do with, right?" And to, just to catch yourself saying, "It might have felt good in the moment, but it doesn't feel good long term."
2: Yeah, and that—that sin, you know, when a lot of times, and I have to be careful because I never want to incite. Like guilt and shame but mm-hmm. when we drink to excess we sin right and what you're talking about is other forms of sin and and instead of using sin as a trigger word i i, I call it habitual sin right mm-hmm. when you know mm-hmm. habitual sin has gotten to a point it's stealing your um your treasures your talents and your what's the third one talent treasure time time mm-hmm. if 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 it matches all of those on a continual basis and it's stealing that from the kingdom, then it's habitual sin. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, um, but we all do it that we all do it. And I never thought of it that way. I never thought of drinking that way. Um, But now that I'm reflective and understand how I used it and what it stole from me, what it stole from me and, and, following God, then I can confidently label it that. I, mm-hmm. you know, and and like I said, I'm not gonna say a drink here and there isn't sin, but I just drank to get drunk. So my, I was definitely in that category, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so. it was not
1: your friend, even though you thought it was
2: <laughs> no not at all. Sort of
1: like a destructive relationship, you know? Yeah. There's a love bombing phase and it feels really good. And then there's a icky phase and it feels really bad. And so if I- that's your relationship with alcohol, pay
2: attention. I had a client who actually had a moment, like a a big moment. She was in super destructive relationships and she was struggling with the alcohol and she had healed herself from the destruction relationships. Like she knew the warning signs. She wasn't going to engage that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And in the middle of this 12 week challenge, she goes, Oh, (laughs) and, (laughs) she goes this is just like i'm treating this just like my exes like this is not good it's it's like this love affair with this thing that's super toxic to me it looks the same yeah yeah and i do understand what you're you're saying because i did the same thing it was something i could control um if i was in a fight i'm gonna open that because i can control that but imagine being able to control your responses and imagine, you know, because we can't control our responses when we're under the influence. It's just, it's, yeah, everything is magnified, yeah. every, every saying, every statement, every behavior. And when we can look at it clear headed, we're like, dang, I will not put up with that, you know, and, and they don't have to blame it. Oh, you've been drinking. Nope. I haven't. And I see you. I see you. I see you clearly right now. I see you, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So of all the things that you said today, Roseanne, um, one of the most powerful one is you are not alone. I know Mm -hmm. there are women who are listening to this, who totally get what we're saying You are there, you've been there. It's a shameful thing to admit. It's a shameful thing to reach out for help for sure. I understand that. So I'm gonna issue a challenge here. What might be possible for you Mm -hmm. if you took Roseanne's 90 day challenge to go alcohol free and just notice, what's the difference in how I feel, how I sleep, my mood, how I handle my problems, how I handle my relationships? And also who I am at the end of 90 days, if you don't feel it's made a big difference in your life and you mm-hmm. then you can certainly go back to doing what you're doing. But you might discover, as I did, that, wow, I kind of actually like myself better. Yes, I feel a little sad when I go out to eat and I can't <laughs> or I can't I can't I don't choose to order wine anymore. Um, I still feel a little sad at that moment and it's not as fun but I feel so much better every other day of the week that I'm not willing to give that good feeling up for a moment of pleasure at the restaurant. So I'll find my pleasure somewhere else. And I think this is that, but I didn't notice that until I noticed it. So what might be possible for you if you took that 90 day challenge and downloaded her book from Amazon or she maybe she can get it you can get it at your
2: website Roseanne what's your website www. has for and um, you can get access to the book there there's a link but also if you click the red button you'll get flashcards that'll give you 20 different things you can say in social situations when you're choosing not to drink yeah. because that's part of the hardest thing mm-hmm. is you know, is what do you say? And so I have really positive things and responses that you can say in social situations at dinner, you know, and in mm-hmm. whatever situation you just choose not to drink. And also if you get the book, I'm it gives you access to private Facebook and I'm in there helping people who want to give it a go and answering questions if they have any.
1: Wonderful. Well, Thank you so much. So Roseanne, would you be willing to pray for our listeners
2: before we go? Oh, I'd love to. Heavenly Father, um, thank you uh, for, for who you are and how much you love. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness, the gift of understanding what that means to forgive ourselves and to love ourselves the way you love us and to ask us to forgive others so that we can create a space to move forward and see what's possible, see what plan you have in store for me. Father, I just pray for these women who are listening and struggling with the substance abuse. I I pray that you would give them the awareness and um, the hope that they need to be brave enough and challenge themselves to this 12-week challenge of alcohol freedom to see what's possible, to see what your plan is, and to understand your word so much more clearly. Thank you, Father, for these women. And um, I just pray that they follow your calling in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you so much for being on our podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's just an
0: honor. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Leslie and I want to encourage you to set aside just a little more time on December 5th, either noon or 730 Eastern, for a free workshop where she will teach you how to move from living in breakdown to experiencing breakthrough. Even in the midst of difficult relationships and brutal circumstances, you have choices. Make the first one now by going to leslievernick.com forward slash story to reserve your spot at this workshop. It will make a difference in your life. Until next time, may God bless all of your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.